there's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well. Because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. Hi. Before the podcast begins, I just wanted to do a little disclaimer. The audio quality in this episode was the most difficult to do. And though I'm slowly learning the ropes, I'm not professional and it is just a labour of love. So please bear that in mind as each episode comes out. If you enjoy the podcast and any episodes resonate with you, then please feel free to share them among friends or on social media. That would really help the podcast to grow. Thank you very much. They then said, you need to think about your life more. Maybe you should give Jesus a chance. Maybe you should consider having a relationship with Christ. I didn't can this man. You know, he didn't exist to me. At the time, and for many years at that point, I'd considered myself a, an atheist. And if pushed, I would class myself as an agnostic at the time. Yeah. Where, as far as I was concerned, either God didn't exist or you can, you can prove to me that he existed. But also running parallel to that was an anger towards God, which is a, a very strange situation to find yourself in. You're angry at something that you believe doesn't exist. So there was obviously something going on there. Hello and welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. A very warm welcome to Mark Nelson, who is the very first person I've interviewed who I haven't met in person before. But like with all of these interviews so far, they're done over Zoom. We're very pleased that Mark's able to join us to share his testimony tonight. How are you, Mark? I'm happy to be joining you. I'm really well today. I've, I've had a nice relaxing day, ready for the weekends coming up where my busy time comes in. How's yourself? Very good, thanks. So, Mark, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your home life and any role that Christianity played in it. Yeah, I was a, a child of the 80s. I, I thought my upbringing was fairly normal, to be quite honest. There was, for the first seven years of my life, it was it was just me, my mother and my father. But in saying that, I actually spent the first three years of my life living with my grandparents because my mother and my father had work commitments. From there... My, my two younger brothers were born, and around about that time, the relationship between my mother and my father started to break down. Now, it was, a, I hate to say it, but it was a, a fairly normal thing. Quite a, lot of, a lot of my friends' group and my friends' group had been products of divorce. The slight difference with me, that there was also a, a bit of violence going about at the same time. This created in me you know, a, a very nice person. I, I became quite an unruly kid. I suppose I was just seeking attention in some way, shape or form. My father was quite distant. Most of the time, especially when it got to the point where him and my, my mother separated. But he was always handy to come and give a bit of a telling off, and his tellings off were never just verbal. And from that, I started to understand that situations or, or problems could be solved either through violence or through demonstrations or strength, being the scariest person in the room kind of thing. Yeah. So so that was, that was pretty much young childhood. I mean, I mean, I'm painting a pretty bad picture, to be quite honest, but I mean, in reality, I had... Two wonderful sets of grandparents that absolutely worshipped the, the ground I walked on. They were a place that I could go to either set. There was a place that I could go to and I, I knew that I'd be safe. That I knew that I would be getting fed. More importantly, I knew that I would be loved. Unfortunately, in the household with my mother, she concentrated more on bringing up my two younger brothers. And let's say I, I'd become quite unruly at this point. So she started dealing with it in, in subtle ways including only setting places at the table for herself and my two younger brothers. I wasn't welcome at the table anymore. When it gets to that point, and you've got friends and, and that outside that are willing to take you in, you spend more time with them. Yeah. Your family kind of drifts away, and by the time I reached my early teens, I was already a law unto myself, to be quite honest. I grew up in a fairly small village, or it was a fairly small village at the time. It was the kind of place where old folk would come to the door and ask you in up to the shops, or if it had been snowing, they'd ask you to do their driveway and everything like that. 
And I couldn't understand how people could see me like that on the outside, but I'd go in, barely a word would be spoken to us. So I started to rely more on my peer group. My peer group at that time started to experiment with drugs. So I started to experiment with drugs. Mostly just smoking cannabis at the weekend, drinking every weekend as well, or every weekend that we could manage to get something together. And then from there, I suppose I was, it was like showing a red rag to a bull. I found a way to, one, enjoy myself, but to annoy everybody else that had something to do in my life or, or, or wanted to steer me in a certain way. Yeah. I, I really went for it. By the time I was about 14, 15, I was taking a, a myriad of drugs. I was not only smoking cannabis, but I was also taking amphetamines, taking ecstasy, anything really, to be quite honest. So is that just you running away from problems? Is that really yeah. what it was for? I've never been the greatest in confronting issues. I've always been the kind of person that will either run away from them or, like I say, I used to have, a, I suppose, a defence mechanism, which would be I'd become the scariest person in the room. I'd, I'd become loud. I'd become possibly physically aggressive, uh, depending on who it was. And that's pretty much where it stems from. I felt that there was, there was no consequences, really. My schoolwork suffered massively. I ended up going into one of my exams under the influence. I can't actually tell you hand on heart whether I was drunk or whether I was stoned. I was bereft of guidance at the time. Yeah. Although there would have been positive figures in my life that I could have sought out, I was a half teenage laddie. I wasn't intending on searching anything like that out. I knew what was best for myself. And unfortunately, that just kept on leading me down the same path. But by the time I got to tail ends of my teens, I'd left my mum's house. I was actually through looking after my grandfather. My grandmother had unfortunately passed away. My grandfather had had a stroke and he needed somebody to look after him. Yeah. So it worked out fantastically at first. That level of responsibility at that age, I stopped doing pretty much everything. Still smoked a ridiculous amount of weed, but I was working, I was looking after a house, looking after a, looking after a family member. You had that focal and, point. Oh yeah, it was almost like some solid ground underneath me. And it was something that I had been lacking for a long time. It's kind of been twisting in the wind quite a lot. So for the next few years, things progressed. I mean, I'm not saying that I was living a perfect life by far, I wasn't it? But a lot of the things that I'd been getting up to, that I'd stopped doing, I thought, here we go. My grandfather then passed away. And I suppose at the time I was dealing with issues, of, like mental health issues, dealing with the grief of my grandfather passing away. I used it as, a, as an excuse, pretty much, to really go for it this time quite quickly. I burned a few bridges that were left available to me. I moved from the city that I was in back to my hometown and paid six months' rent on a flat just so I could hide away from the world. Okay. I didn't need to think about anything else other than putting food in my belly and going out every now and again to buy weed. But when I moved back to my town, everybody that had at one point sold soft drugs had moved up in the, in the game, I suppose you would call it, and were now selling harder drugs. I didn't see this as a big thing. Within six months, my mental state had hit rock bottom. I found myself standing in a phone box. I had no place to go. The rent money had run out. My landlord was wanting rid of me because I didn't have a way of paying the rent. I didn't have any options. I, I contacted the Citizens Advice and they gave me a, an A4 sheet of paper. And on that A4 sheet of paper, there was a list of numbers for different homeless and accommodation. Now, you've got to understand, I was a man in my early 20s, I was very proud. Yeah. The idea of going into homeless accommodation didn't really appeal to me. But anyway, I guess a wee bit later on at night, like I say, I'm standing in this phone box and I'm working my way through some of these numbers. Some of them are out of date, some of them were full. I tried, like, the bed and breakfast, got no place. And there used to be a, an organisation called the RSI, which was the Rough Sleepers Initiative. And I realised that was the only number that was picking up. You know, it's like... You think you've hit rock bottom at that point, but trust me, rock bottom's a lot, lot further down than that. Let me just interject and ask a question at this point. Obviously, you're at a low ebb at this stage in your story. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, had you had any Christian influence, any religious influence at all, from grandparents or from school? I've had religious influence. I didn't have a faith. Okay. Religion, as it was presented to me, gave you an idea of what football taught somebody were. It was presented to me almost as, right, so we're in this camp and they're in that camp and we don't like them. Yeah. It was nonsense. It was absolute nonsense. I'd actually went to a, a, a Roman Catholic high school and I'd hated it. I ended up in a, a stand-up fight with a religious education teacher who lamped me so hard that the only other person that had hit me that hard was my father. That's um, not the way I thought the story was going to go. 
It was over a bottle of Iron Brew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time, if you can remember, some of the classrooms would have sinks in them. Like, there would be almost old science kind of classrooms. This one had been repurposed for, for religious education, and we had somebody, and not the usual RE teacher. The usual RE teacher was a, a lovely person that would let you get away with murder, to be quite honest. And wouldn't lamp um, you. It wouldn't lamp you. This new guy that came in to cover, seen a glass bottle of iron brew sticking at my, my school bag. And I had reached down to make sure that the lid was, was firm on top of it. Now, give me due, he must have thought that I was either taking a drink or I'd just taken a drink. And he came across, snatched it up and started marching across to the sinks, telling everybody that, in a very loud voice, that this was going down the sink and it was my own fault. Now, I had a reputation to protect at this point. So I got up and I, I leapt over two, possibly three desks, basically leapt towards them. Now... I was big for my age, as in my teens. This is a fully grown man who basically caught me, put me back down, marched me outside, and uh, we went into another room to which, instead of speaking to me, he just cracked me one. <laughs> <laughs> and to say that I was shocked would be uh, would be an understatement. Yeah. And this was this is what I mean by saying that I'd been introduced to religion, but I hadn't been introduced to what faith was. That's not a positive image of religion. I genuinely thought back then that when it comes to it, one, it just wasn't for me, two, the, the proper Christians, I didn't, didn't consider this man a proper Christian. I, I consider proper Christians to be middle class, two cars, nice house, got their life together and everything like that. Yeah. Little did I know. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was an eye-opener, but let's like say I just hadn't experienced what faith was. And to this day, I'm still wary of using the word religion. I think that a faith is, is something that everybody desperately needs. Religion less so. The relationship with Jesus Christ is a must for everybody. I really enjoyed when Amy was saying this on your, your previous podcast about how churches can sometimes slip up through tradition. You know, they look at what's traditional instead of looking into what's scriptural. And this is this is massively important. A lot of the times where we fall down is because we're following tradition just because your granddad done it at church. Moving on, I found myself phoning up this, this place, the RSI. The woman that picked up the phone told me that they were full, that there was no beds. And I almost broke down on the phone. And she says, come along, you can come and sit in the office, but got a comfy chair. I'm going to be awake all night, you know, because she was basically watching the place. You can come and have a cup of tea. It was the best offer I'd had for a long time. So marched myself along there, made sure that nobody seen me going into the place. Got myself comfortable, had a, had a really nice conversation. I eventually managed to get my head down. In the morning, she was friends with one of the guys that worked in the Salvation Army. And she gave him a call, telling him basically the, the state that I was in, and got me a bed. And I was incredibly grateful. I still am incredibly grateful to that woman. Unfortunately, what that done was also give me access directly to some place where I could take drugs with people around me that were taking drugs. Yeah and nobody was going to judge my actions. And in fact, to be quite honest, if I wasn't taking drugs, I would have stood out like a sore thumb. So a, a few months after I, I found myself in a hostel, I found myself taking harder and harder drugs and eventually ending up on, on heroin. To explain what ends up happening, I mean, by the time I end up with a habit, it found me before I found out, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. I didn't realise I had a habit, I just thought I was feeling a wee bit down. And then the next thing you know, I'm, I'm needing to take this drug. The next few years, like Groundhog Day, waking up at whatever time, finding money, going and taking drugs. During this time, I met a lassie and we got on quite well. That ended up leading to us living together and, uh, and eventually we had a child, we had my son. And, and I tried, I really tried, but what we thought was love was actually massively toxic. We were really bad for each other. I managed to come away from drugs a couple of times and then just, just fell back into them. Uh, at least one of the times it was enabled by my partner. I mean, I, I know people that still live that kind of life. It's almost a mechanical way of living. You go by the numbers, you get up in the morning, you do the basics that you have to do because you've got a, a house and a kid and a partner. Yeah. And then you go and take your drugs and everything like that. Could you function in life and be on drugs or was it a case of one or the other? Oh no, I was a functioning addict for many years. Okay. I was working away, not always on the same job, but I had multiple jobs. Most of the people that knew me were out with that ring of drug users. So it's a very secretive thing at first. And I, I managed to keep up the pretense. 
probably not for as long as I thought I did, but I managed to keep up the pretense that everything was was fine with me. It's strange, people will accept if you say something like, oh no, I've, I've just had a few too many drinks the night before, I'm, I'm feeling a wee bit down and everything like that. But if you mention to them that, no, I took half a gram of heroin yesterday or I'm needing heroin today, their actions and their attitude towards you are massively different. The thing is, they're both drugs and they both destroy lives. Yeah. Quite quickly after this, I found my relationship falling apart. I ended up moving it to someplace else. I actually moved into a bed and breakfast for a wee while. It was heartbreaking to go and basically visit my son. I found myself moving it into a flat myself and everything then went on drugs. And when I say everything, I mean money for electric. No, that's money for drugs. Money for food. No, that's money for drugs. Money for bus fare. No, you can walk. That's money for drugs. Everything. Yeah. We're still working sporadically, but less and less so because my ability to get up in the morning and actually put in a proper shift was diminished massively. I found myself going past drop-ins to get something to eat. Anybody listening to this, if you end up getting to that stage, you can. We are very close to rock bottom. Like To go through the door of a church hall, cap in hand, basically, and have somebody else provide a meal for you. It's a very sobering experience the first few times that you did it. Yeah, I'm sure. Unfortunately, like with everything, you kind of can either justify it or you get used to it. This then became my life. I was involved in fairly petty crime. Bits and pieces of it had kind of been with me for many years at this point, but my morals went out the windy. My drug intake went through the roof. My circle of friends disappeared to be replaced with a group of associates that I would take drugs with. This became my groundhog day. This became something that just kept on happening day in, day out for years. But the one good thing that had happened at this point there was a, a church outreach kind of thing running, and they, they kind of some of the, the folk that were doing this, they kind of knew our faces. I, I've always been one for chatting away, like, guy, for whatever reason. This church outreach, they basically like a food ministry almost. And it's because they knew our faces. I found myself being invited to church one night. They kind of asked me to come to morning service because morning didn't exist to me at that point. <laughs> they asked me to come along to evening service, and I refused. And I've said this many a time to people. They kept on asking me. They mentioned that, you know, I might enjoy it. There was a bunch of faces in there that I would know. I'd be able to chat away to. Basically, you know, the whole, it's full of good people and everything like that. They then said, you need to think about your life more. Maybe you should give Jesus a chance. Maybe you should consider having a relationship with Christ. I didn't can this man. You know, he didn't exist to me. At the time, and for many years at that point, I'd considered myself a, an atheist. And if pushed, I would class myself as an agnostic at the time. Okay. Where, as far as I was concerned, either God didn't exist or you can, you can prove to me that he existed. But also running parallel to that was an anger towards God, which is a, a very strange situation to find yourself in. You're angry at something that you believe doesn't exist. So there was obviously something going on there, but this was mainly to cover the, the anger that I had towards myself. I demonstrated it as a, an anger to the world, or an anger to God, or, or whatever, but it was actually an anger towards myself. I hated myself at this point. And when I say hate, I mean proper loathed myself at this point. But the only way I could demonstrate that is to be to be a nasty person. So anyway, they're, they're asking me to come to church, and I'm refusing. And then it eventually gets to, at the end of the service, we have a cup of tea and a biscuit. So I went along and got a cup of tea and a biscuit. The way I look at it now, when I look back on those days, I first entered church, yeah, for a cup of tea and a biscuit, but also for a social group. What the what the minister was saying at the front, I'll maybe listen to, probably wouldn't I? like some of the songs, but when they better recite them to you as I came back out the place. That was pretty much all it was. This, this continued for a wee while and then eventually got a bit of a wake-up call. I was out one new year and I was very drunk. Very, very drunk. And I fell down two flights of concrete steps and shattered my knee into 56 pieces, which is fun. Happy New Year. Yeah, pretty much. Um, that then led on, I, I got up and, and I, I walked a few hundred yards. <sighs> That's how drunk I was. My knee keeping itself together, I don't know how. And then eventually, a part what decided to kind of come out the side of my leg. And at about the same time, I, I collapsed down and there just happened to be a perfectly placed half wall at that time where I was falling, just in line with my head. So uh, I smashed my head off that as I went down. Pretty much knocked myself out. Couldn't get myself back up. Kept on coming back 
around into consciousness and been in, a, in an incredible amount of pain. And I, I really thought my number was up. It was early hours of the 1st of January. It was raining. There was nobody on the streets. I couldn't move. Every time I tried to, pretty much passed out for the first wee while. And at that point, I'm not ashamed to say that I started praying. I genuinely don't think that I'd prayed properly beforehand. For as much as I'd been to a, a religious school, a, a Roman Catholic school, I could recite. I could recite prayers to you. I could do it probably standing on my head, to be quite honest, and not understand, or not so much not understand, but not care about the single word that came out of my mouth. I pled and begged, made deals that night, anything to get me that situation. Two policemen drove down a dead-end street, got out their van in the rain, walked around the corner, but nobody would have knew who I was. There was no cameras there. They could have seen me. Nobody had come past. And they found me lying on the street. They found me lying in the path. Instead of calling an ambulance, they got me into the police van. One of them sat in the back and basically held me together. Got me up to the hospital. Got put back together. Stayed in the hospital for a week while. And uh, when I came back out, everything was, was a struggle. You know, being comfortable, even just sitting down, going to sleep at night, I couldn't have sheets on top of my leg, never mind blankets. Just getting stuff for the shops. A five-minute walk would take about an hour and a half, two hours, because wow. it was just too much. The one thing that happened is the, the doctor that I'd seen gave me a prescription for painkillers, which were opiate-based, and it gave me a wee break from heroin because, one, I couldn't get out to get any, and two... You know, the, the cravings were being subdued by, by these painkillers. Over a course of time, I, I started to feel a wee bit stronger. I was still going about on crutches. I had to end up having a, another operation on my leg. And as I, I went about, I, I was constantly feeling vulnerable. I couldn't rely on my size or my strength at the time. For as much, there was much stronger people going about, but I always knew that there was easier targets than me. Yeah. In, in the groups that we went about. And, but all of a sudden, I felt like I was at the bottom of the pile. And then I was informed that certain people that hadn't been hadn't been too poly we were going to take the opportunity to attempt it and just very sharp things into my body. So uh, I headed to Mexico. When I say Mexico, I, I literally went to the city next to the city that I was in, like guy. But as far as I was concerned, that was Mexico to me. I was getting out of there. I was going to say I haven't heard that part of the testimony. I missed. I missed that bit. <laughs> yeah, no, the Mexico I, I, years. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the bandito years. Um, <laughs> Thing is, I've been to Dundee and it is nothing like Mexico weather-wise. How dare you? The weather in Dundee is very... It's a sunny city. It is, it's, it's the sunny city of Dundee. Every time um, I've been through Dundee, it's been raining. It's been raining. Every uh, single time. <laughs> We put that on just for you. <laughs> no, I, I come through to Dundee, and for the first week, well, I was kind of doing all right. When I moved through, I had to move back into a homeless shelter. There was no place else for me to go. I was kicked out four hours later because they come and check in on you, make sure that you're settling in. And when they came and checked in on me, I was sitting with all the drug paraphernalia on my bed, absolutely out of my face. It's a bad face so impression. Yeah, yeah, wasn't it wasn't the greatest impression to make? Anyway, so I got kicked out and I was told that, you know, when you come back tomorrow, it'll just be a case of picking up your stuff. For whatever reason, that wasn't what came to pass. They put a, a roof over my head for the, the next wee while and I felt like I could do no wrong, which is a really bad thing for me to start feeling. If I feel like I can do no wrong, then I'll push the boundaries. So while staying in that hostel, I think it was just the once that I was revived by the paramedics. I was really pushing my drug intake. In the same vein, I was also not really eating to the point where, I mean, I'm six foot five, and by rough estimates, I probably dropped down to about 11 stone. Wow, okay. I've got a a comparison picture for you back then that I sometimes use nowadays when I'm speaking to people to kind of demonstrate the difference in my life and it's it's fairly obvious when you see it I mean I'm literally twice the man that I used to be physically I didn't care about anything else <laughs> when I was in this hostel I was going along to a, a soup kitchen and it's a guy called Mike Cordner he runs an organisation in Dundee called Eagles Wings which 
to say it's a godsend to people is not mincing my words. Like, I, I mean, literally is. You had, and I'll always describe them this, this way, you had a bunch of crazy Christians standing out, rain, sleet, snow, whatever. Yeah. Sometimes actually under sun as well. They would not only give you a bit of food, but they'd also chat with you. At this point in my life, people didn't chat with me. People spoke at me or people just didn't have anything to do with me. People would cross the street in some cases to get away from me. But I had people like Mike and that asking how I was and actually expecting an answer. He, he wasn't just doing it as a passing thing. He was genuinely wanting to know how are you. So I started going around there on a fairly regular basis and started to, to meet quite a few of the, the different volunteers. And they were all great folk. And my life stayed the same. I was hoping that you weren't, you weren't expecting me to say I met a bunch of Christians and everything was fine. <laughs> But, um, you mean Christians didn't just solve all the problems? Christians create problems, to be quite honest, in a lot of <laughs> No, every, everything kind of just went back to routine, but I, had, I suppose it was a wee glimmer of light to me. At that point, I, I knew that I could go along. I, I knew if there was anything really bothering me that I could speak to these people. And on some level, I wouldn't be judged. They wouldn't shy away from us. They had a, a drop-in centre that a couple of the members of the staff that used to work there would say that when I walked in through the door, that if I was having a good day, then everything was going to be okay. I'd be chatty, I would engage with folk and everything would be, you know, smiles and puppy dog tails and everything like that. But if I came through the door and I was in a bad mood, it would be like I brought a dark cloud in with me. Right. And I would make sure that everybody was in a bad mood. I was probably the weakest that I'd ever been in my life, but I was also probably getting to the point where I was the most aggressive. Okay. And I would justify it by handing people stuff. Maybe a, again, there was a, I think there was an incident with a rake or a pair of secateurs or something like that where I handed it to somebody and said that you're going to need it. And then in my mind, it would justify anything that would follow afterwards. Like I say, I wasn't a very nice person. But still, these people for Eagle's Wings would, would chat away to us. One or two in particular would go out their way to, to engage with me. I ended up getting a, what's called a network flat, a scatter flat. Moved out the hostel and had me in place again. Kind of started to build my life back up, but I was still taking drugs. I was still unemployed. I was still dealing with mental health issues that come directly from the drugs. I found myself walking down at midnight to get something to eat one night. There's a 24-hour bakery in, in Dundee, and all in my mind was, I'm, I'm going down and I'm going to, going to treat myself. It was uh, the night my benefits came in. I heard footsteps coming running up behind me. And because of who I was, because it was Dundee and because it's late at night, I'm thinking that here comes trouble. Yeah. And when I turned around, it was somebody that I knew really well, that I considered a friend back then. And he was in tears. He had been robbed just a wee while beforehand of drugs, money, and some keepsakes that he had from a family member that had passed away. So I took it upon myself to sort this for him. I went down to somebody's house that had done it, got into the house, and I... I think it would be best for us to, to just leave it at. I'm not going to glorify what went on in that house, but it wasn't my best moment. Yeah. I think we can all imagine it wasn't just a chat. No, no, unfortunately not. An hour and a half later, after I left that house, I thought the police were at my door, eight officers with a dog. I'll tell you now, it was the biggest dog I've ever seen like at that time. It was <laughs> massive. And I mean, I like animals, but that dog definitely didn't like me that night. I was terrified. You weren't stroking it? No. I'm pretty, pretty sure I would have lost a hand at that point. Um, so I got taken down to the station. Let's say I get involved in, in crime. I'd, I was no stranger to the police. But this this was probably what it was. It was one of the most serious, uh, serious things that I'd been involved in. I knew it was serious. I knew that there was going to be consequences in some way, shape or form. But I just didn't know how it would develop. I got taken to court and got released. And there's a, there's a strange period. You, you know that it's going to come back. You know that you're going to get a letter through the door to, to appear back at court. But at this point, it's been released. You know, it's, you've not got away with anything, yeah. but still there's not actually been a punishment. So you, you enter into almost like a limbo. Now, that's okay if it if it's hanging over your head for a couple of months or whatever. It was close to two years okay. uh, going up to court and then being released again, going up to court, being released. 
and then I got to the the really bad stage where I missed a court a court date. I won't got issued for my arrest. Yeah, I think three days no, three days was on, I think. They basically arrested me for for missing a court date. And I was I mean, I thought my mental health would be bad beforehand, but it was it was proper rock bottom. I was I, I got to the point where I mean, I was pretty much crying for no reason. The drugs that I was taking at the time meant that I could start a sentence, but by about two or three words in it, I'd forgotten what I was saying, pretty much who I was saying it to and why I was saying it. But for whatever reason, I felt that this was my only solace at that time. I thought that they were actually benefiting me in some way. I was told time and time again by one of the workers at Eagles that, that I was basically killing myself. She hated seeing people, and she hated seeing me taking these drugs. I was walking up to a dealer's house with two or three other guys. We were bunching together so we could get something. And I didn't care what it was, but I decided, nah, turn around and started walking away. Much to their disgust because without my cash, meant that, that meant they couldn't get any drugs either. So I suppose I kind of done them a bit, like, a bit of a favour that day. I really started to push myself to, to kind of come away from everything at that point. This was while the court case was, was still ongoing at this point, but... The folk at Eagles kind of seen me pushing myself and, and decided to kind of give me a, a bit of an opportunity. I, I was showing up to fill the van and everything. Instead of going down, I, I didn't want to involve myself with people as much at this point. Yeah. And I was uh, showing up to their, their wee unit and helping fill the van, but also at the same time, again, I'm there for myself. Um, I'm You're looking for the biscuits. Pretty much. Um, all the best stuff was going away with me. And this is, this is kind of going on for a wee while. It then got to the point where I started going out to help out in the van every now and again. And then it got to the point where it happened quite a few times and then all of a sudden I found myself with the court that just appeared at absolutely no place. By this point, I thought this this kind of going away. It had been ongoing for so long and from what my solicitor had said and everything like that, I walked into that court that day with £250 in my back pocket, turned my co-accused and said, when this is all over and done with this afternoon, we're going to the pub. So throughout the whole drug experience, I suppose the problem is that drugs fill a, a void in people's lives. When the drugs are removed, is there nothing there? There's no hope? Is that the experience you found? De that's definitely what we found with Mark. Ev everybody's different. When we used to see Mark coming up to the van... He, he was just lost, you know. He, he was wandering, wandering through life, just sort of aimlessly looking for something and knew that he was trying to fill a void and he was trying to fill it with, like, just random combinations of drugs. Like, I remember one day chat, I was chatting to him about, I think I was going to, I was bringing you food round or something, wasn't I? We'd, we'd had milk handed in and, and I used to go and just drop stuff off at, some of the guys' houses, you know, just like I've left it on your doorstep, there's milk, there's bread or whatever. Yeah. Phoned him to say, I've got some stuff if you want it. And like he could hardly string a sentence together. And I was like, what What on earth have you taken? And oh, I don't really know. I bought a like a lucky dip or something, you know, and it's literally just a bag of drugs, a, a bag of pills. It was just random combinations, you know, so he'd no care for his own life or anything yeah. at that point. And he'd, he'd built walls around him, walls around his mind, walls around his heart. Anytime you mentioned anything to do with the Bible or the gospel or anything, it was shot down. But yeah, again, food came into play. Yeah, and we, <laughs> we quickly learned that actually the way to, I suppose the way to Mark's soul was food. We used that to break down Barry, and that's what they do it, eagles is they, they use food as a way to initiate conversation but with mark it was difficult because nobody knew anything about him he was so closed off he he only told you what he wanted you to know which was very very little but yet everybody that came in contact with him knew that he was a really intelligent guy probably too intelligent for his own good new loads could quote scriptures to you had a real knowledge of the Bible, but yet wanted nothing to do with it, had no interest in learning 
anything about it. He'd said before, I reckon you're on the fence. I can make you question your faith. And, you know, one day you're going to stop going to church because I reckon I can really make you question things. Yeah, that doesn't work out quite as well as he thought. But yeah, at this point, I'd only experienced religion. I explained to you about beforehand. Uh, yeah. I still didn't have really a concept of what faith was. When you start breaking promises to yourself, and I don't mean like the daft we want, oh, I promise to myself that I'm, I'm not going to eat that full packet of biscuits in the end, eating the whole packet of biscuits. You know, that's just half of the course. When you've decided, when you've really taken a hard look at yourself and decided that certain things have to change, you're not living, you know, you're just existing. Yeah. And then immediately, instead of following through those promises, you find a way to circumnavigate them. So instead of going back to drugs, I came out of the jail and started drinking around about a litre of vodka a day. I thought I was heading back to square one. Kirsty, on the other hand, decided that she would try and get in touch with me because she hadn't heard from me. I contacted her coming out of the jail just to say I was out, and then she hadn't heard from me. Days had went past. Um, weeks. Weeks, uh, weeks. Seemed like days to me. But the other thing was we knew that Mark was going to be put out the flat that he was in. While he'd been in serving his sentence, he'd written out to say, look, it looks like I'm going to lose my flat because I've obviously built up rent arrears. So he was also then looking at going back to a hostel. But one of the volunteers at the time had an empty flat and had said, look, you could have this. It's not perfect, but it would be something. Yeah. So we were trying to get in contact with him to say, look, you need to stop hiding and stop drinking away this problem and there actually is a solution if you just talk to us. Nobody could get in touch with Mark until I, I think, did I phone you one day and you did, you just so happened to pick up because you'd stopped screening my calls. I think I pressed the wrong button. And I said, um, <laughs> I'm going up to a friend's house to watch a DVD and have a Chinese. And it was a film that he'd wanted to see but had come out when he was in prison. So I was like, if you want to come, let me know. If not, no pressure. You don't have to talk. Don't have to talk to anybody. You can come in, have something to eat, watch the film, and I'll drop you back home. And he just went, all right then. I didn't expect him to say, okay. And I honestly just thought it was just blown off. And to be honest, we'd probably started to write him off a wee bit as well because we just weren't getting anywhere. Yeah, so that was the first time that any of us had actually seen Mark since he came out of prison. You want to tell him the rest of what happened? <laughs> At what point do you get saved? I've actually put a bit of thought into this just recently. So the whole idea of being a Christian and the whole idea of being saved. So I was always a Christian. I just didn't know it at that point. But when it comes to being I, saved... I think you need to explain that a bit better. You don't mean, like, from... No, I, what, what I mean from that is... You weren't born a Christian, so, Mark. I'm not plugging no. that one. No, what, what I mean by I was that having is a panic there. <laughs> the, the, things, the things that I put myself at different parts of my life, I've laid it at other people's feet, including God. But the things that I put myself through in my life, or the things that I experienced in my life, all led to a certain point. And, and I thought it was making me a certain person. The person that I was already existed, I was covering it up. You know when you watch movies like Indiana Jones or something, he gets like some mad ancient tablet and he blows all the sand off it and it reveals what's underneath it? Well, if you were to pick that tablet up and not blow the sand off, that's what I was at one point. I had all this crud on top of me kind of thing, addiction, criminality, uh, anger issues. I, I was distant, I blocked everybody off. The Lord comes along and just blows all the crud off me. You know, I was literally washed by the blood. It revealed what was underneath, which he obviously knew what was underneath. Which was a Christian that was that was, that was waiting to be well, waiting to be reborn, to be quite honest. But it, it comes down to Kirsty again. She started inviting me along to different things. If she was meeting up with friends and stuff like that, we maybe go for a pizza, maybe go for a coffee. And I started opening up a wee bit more to her, and she started having an influence on my life. She then starts to say that she was going to be moving through to Dundee, and that she was going to be going to church in Dundee. Maybe I should come along. One, I was not keen, and two, it wasn't really a question. <laughs> it was. I told uh, them where I was going to pick them up, I think. Uh, uh, okay, so come along. And if, I mean, it, there might have been a closed fist involved at some point. But anyway. There will be biscuits. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. You know, I've been to church before. There this, was... this evolved to curry, though, Dan. We stepped oh. it up a gear. Yeah. <laughs> so I started going along to Hill Bank, and I got along with the folk. 
I listened to, to what was being said. I didn't join in with the singing because I'm really, really bad at singing. But I didn't think there was much change up. It was just someplace else for me to go. And this, this kind of... I was being asked by one particular person, not Kirsty this time, every week when I showed up to, to church, I was being asked if there was any change yet. You know? Are you saved yet? Basically, are you, are you saved yet? <laughs> and this, this, this went on for a couple of months. Yeah, would have been. I was working away in a job that I hated, and I had uh, a night to myself one night. I'm standing in the shower. I don't care about you, but if I'm in the shower, I've got music on. Yeah. And if Nathan can hear me, that's when I'll sing. Normally, it would be, I don't know, just, just pick any sort of random music. My, my music taste is fairly eclectic. I'm, I'm standing singing away in the shower, and it's a Christian song that I'm singing. I mean, I mean, it's not like they magically appeared on my playlist. I, I picked out a few songs that I just that I happened to like. But I'm singing away to a, a Christian song. As I turned in the shower, there was a, a wee mirror in, in the shower. I caught my reflection and I was happy. Uh, no, happy is maybe not the word, but I was content. And uh, it, was, it was an experience where that, that was quite foreign for me. I was happy with my lot at that point, kind of thing. And it wasn't a... It wasn't anything external. It wasn't. A, uh, was it fabricated? No, it wasn't like what's in my pocket or you know what. I just had this overwhelming sense of contentment. Yeah. I, I don't and realisation. I've spoke to, to to loads of people when it comes to when they got saved, and and some of them will tell you about you know there was this like almost epiphany or you know there, there was you know there was a, a definite definite moment. It was just a realisation. I had realised at that point that I was saved. I, I can't tell you exactly when it happened. You know, it obviously happened previous, and it just took me a while to catch up with the fact. But I, I'm stood in the shower, and honestly, it was it was something else. I was just going to say, I think we often expect people to use the vocabulary we use. And when they don't, yeah. we then think, well, they're not saved, they haven't trusted, they haven't believed, they haven't repented. Unless they mm -hmm. use the words that we expect, yeah. then we would say, well, I'm not sure if that person's a Christian. But actually, like with Amy and like with yourself, it's not that time and date that's stamped in a diary somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's that it's um, that inner peace that only comes from having your, your sins forgiven. I would consider is beforehand, even when I start becoming such a an angry person, such a, an aggressive person, I was still fueled by anger. I always knew that there was a well inside me that if I needed to, that I could switch it back on, that it was there, that I was just, I was still angry. I was standing in that shower, and there's been a couple of things that have happened since, but that is not there. You know, that it's literally just been taken away. I got out of the shower, I contacted one of the elders from the church, uh, I kind of started to say, and he, he dragged it out of me. Like, I, I was just, I was, I was very protective over it at first. Like, this has happened. What are other people going to think? How long can I hide this for? And all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, am I, um, does this mean that I'm one of those weird Christians? Thumbs out, I um, the the conversations that, that I started to have with the, the elders at the church quickly led on to. The, the idea of baptism. It seemed the right thing to do, not to just to, to do it in the in the hall, um, in front of people that would look upon it as here's one coming into the fold. It, it was really important to me to do it as like a a very public statement. So I chose to do it in the tea. Okay. In May. Can I make an assumption that you then were hospitalised with pneumonia? <laughs> you know something? It was it was exhilarating in a way. Um, and bizarrely, it was a really warm, sunny day. That one day in one. Dundee when it's warm. Yeah. So, so I was really fortunate that not long after I was saved, one of my friends found himself in the same situation. We kind of held off and made sure that our baptisms were going to be on the same day. And we were baptising the day together. That's brilliant. And I'm going to correct you what? on something. Um this friend gets saved before Mark. I will never forget the day that he told Mark that he, he'd get saved. Mark was absolutely furious with him because this is a guy who was also probably, well, he would have said he was a militant, militant atheist. atheist. And he was like, um, oh, I've got something to tell you. I've, I've been going along to a Christianity Explored course and, and I've given my life to the Lord. You know, I, I've, I've, I know I'm a sinner and... 
you know, and and Mark just stood with his face like thunder, and I was like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, I can't believe that he's gone over to your side. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was fu- absolutely furious. And it wasn't long after that, I had said to like, who are all your friends, Mark? And he sort of listed off these people. And I'm like, they're all Christians. Who are you going to meet up with? What are you doing tonight? He was going out for dinner with some Christians. You know, he he'd planned stuff for church on the Sunday and, it was that realisation that actually his whole life, like God had peppered his life with Christians yeah. leading up to this moment, you know, where that, like, realisation that he did actually believe everything, everything that he'd built these walls up against, every time he put a brick up, God removed two. You know, like, it was just... He had no arguments left against it. Mark had exhausted every argument about why he shouldn't believe and actually just realised, you know what, it makes sense. Um, and I do, I do believe it. I believe that that Jesus is the son of God. And seeing somebody come through such a transformation like yeah. that is, it is un, like, you, you can't put it into words. You know, I know how much like us and, and like the folk at Hill Bank and, and the folk at Eagles sort of really celebrated that day. And you think what it must have been like in heaven when they saw this guy that they had saved from so many overdoses, from so many life-endangering situations. And they'd nurtured Mark. You could see that God had him in his hand right through that and and it was really only in the last couple of years that you sat back and went through all these big events and realized at that point there was actually another christian there to help you along the next wee bit of your journey and it was something else there's, actually you know how every now and again there's like questions you get asked questions every day and everything like that you'll pay a certain amount of thought to you might just pay lip service to the answer and everything but there's certain questions that get asked to you in your life that become your sole focus at that point. There's no what-ifs. There's no, but it could also be. There's no, maybe I'm wrong. Standing in the tent, and only two elders, myself and Tony, my, my mate that was getting baptised that day, could hear anything that was getting said there. Just before they, they put me under the water, I was asked if I took Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. At that point, you know, you, you kind of... I once said to somebody that I was unsure before I got baptised. And the reason that I was unsure is because I didn't think that I was worthy of it. The, the realisation afterwards, once you're baptised, is you know that you're not worthy of it. Yeah. The only way I can define before and after, you, you didn't put any gravitas towards the grace of God beforehand. And afterwards, it really... It just dawns on you. Dawns, maybe I know the right word. Just slaps you in the face in a way. No, you're you're not worthy of this, but you're loved. You're not worthy of this, but you're washed by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah. You're not worthy of this. But you're wanted. But you're, yeah, you're wanted. The other way you can phrase it is that from somebody who said, I don't think there is a God, to suddenly confessing Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's some transformation. Mm Mm-hmm. Aye. Aye, it was it's massively comforting to know that from before I was born, the Lord knew where he was taking me to, because I didn't have a clue where I was going. When Kirsty says I was lost, I, I was. But it's massively comforting to know that for all the times that I discounted him, for all the times that I denied him, and for all the times that I turned my back on him, when I went to reach out my hand, he was already there. It wasn't even a case. Uh, it was once described to me that when it comes to being saved, imagine yourself at the bottom or whatever. It's not a case of you're drowning, as in, in sin, it's you're drowned, you're dead. There's nothing that you're doing that can save you. It's Christ that reaches his hand and pulls you out the water, puts breath back into your lungs, yeah, and puts you back on your feet. It's been demonstrated to me multiple times now. I kind of knew that becoming a Christian wasn't going to be the bed of roses that I once thought it would have been many years ago. You know, that it was the middle-class life with a couple of cars and everything like that. Yeah. But the benefit is that no matter hard, how hard life gets, you know that there's a purpose behind it and you know that you've got somebody that you can turn to that is going to hold you in the, in the palm of their hand. 
No, I, I thought that that was my lot. Like I say, I was I was working in a job that I, I really didn't like. My personal life was was the best that it had been for for many years. I repaid Kirsty by by marrying her. You know, I had to do something to pay back all those pizzas. <laughs> so um, I mean, he proposed on my thirtieth birthday, then. So you know, he he got off lightly. One present. That was it. Yeah, but what a present. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, like I say, it was either that or a Dyson Hoover, and it turned out the Dysons were more expensive than I thought. So. <laughs> he's not. He's not even joking about it. I know. That. I, need, I know he's not. I know he's not. But well, it shows a level of intelligence because what ended up happening? We got it as a wedding. We got it as a wedding. <laughs> I was, like I say, from the moment in the shower, I, I was content. And for as much as I was in a job that I didn't particularly like, I was grateful that I was in a job. You know, I mean, not many people would have employed me at that point. Yeah. I was in a good relationship. I was involved with a good church. Um, and I had a, a relationship with God. And, and I thought, well, that's pretty much it. And then it was revealed to me um, about a year and a half ago that there was a, a purpose to it all. So nowadays, I, I get to use everything um, that I've went through in a way that, that benefits other people. Just being like almost uh, the icing on top. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. Just as just this kind of, I don't want to gloss over the relationship with Kirsty. So obviously in 2018, you two get married. And then, uh, and then in 2019, you get the job you've always wanted, which is as a support worker. Yeah. Um, so what does the future hold for you two, God willing? Kittens. <laughs> we rescued the cat. Um, do you know what? We don't We don't know. We've had a couple of big changes. So I took quite a hard decision this year to step back from Eagle's Wings. Okay. Um, I'd worked with them for seven years and I just felt like God was leading me elsewhere. Um, so I had, for the last three years, I'd been working one day a week with another charity in Dundee, another Christian charity called Parish Nursing. Yeah. Um, and they had off they'd offered me extra hours and I, I just I couldn't leave Eagles. I just couldn't do it. There was so much of my life was tied up in it. But this year God really shook me and said, It's time, you need to move on. Um so I've gone to Parish Nursing two days a week as well as my NHS job. So that's opening up a lot of other doors and, you know, a lot of opportunities um, are coming from it. And, yeah, we're just, you know, we're just trying to stay faithful to God. When it comes to it, we know that, that God's going to lead us mm -hmm. wherever he wants us to go. Yeah. And because we have trust in him, we know that he's, he's let's say, he's going to make use of us in some way. Yeah. Um, and we're not the best at making plans, so <laughs> we're quite happy for someone else to do that for us. And, um, that, and that's someone knows the big picture. Exactly. And he knows, where he, he knows what we're good at. He knows what we're not good at. And, you know, Mark um, compliments parts of my character and I compliment parts of, of Mark's character, um, you know, which is unsurprising because I'm a very complimentary person. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, it It works. And for as much as, you know, it might not have been, you know, some people's sort of choice. We do, we do joke, and I said this to you when we spoke earlier, that our, my family do laugh that I found a husband at a soup kitchen. But, you know, that wasn't... That was a total shot, you know it. They now like me better than half. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually true. That's the sad thing. Just to just to demonstrate the the, the power of God, though, is the, the simple fact that two of the people that I took the most drugs with um, over a number of years, we out of the three of all the three of us have uh, have entered into recovery. Now, recovery will be something that I'll be constantly on, as same as, as, as with them. We all took different paths. And the only common strand is the fact that we all found the Lord. Mm -hmm. So one man sits in jail just now, and he's the healthiest. And when I say healthy, I mean physically and mentally and spiritually that he's ever been. And happiest. And he's happy. 
another man is getting ready to leave a rehab and has a, a I mean for me to say a young faith that's a that's discounting that but he's relying on the Lord to get him through that. Mm -hmm. He's going through some of the most difficult things a person can go through. But he's, he's found a rock, he's found solid ground. And then the same with me. And for all the the substitutes, for all the support that anybody can offer, time and time again, what I see is he's turned to the Lord and the Lord will provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not been easy for him, though, Dan, and I think we do have to highlight that Mark's faith is and, and the hope that he has in the Lord, and, and it's amazing, but it's still difficult. That part of him that was drawn to drugs in the first place, it's not often completely removed. Now, for some people, it is. Some people find that they drop everything. You know, it, it, as soon as they turn to the Lord, their need for all these things go. But for some people, it's a constant battle, and like not just with Mark, with other folk we know, Christians who have come through addiction, it's something that they constantly battle with. Having a faith to rely on, that's your strength. Yeah. See, when Mark first got saved, almost like overnight, the amount of people that would come up and offer him drugs because they wanted to see him fail yeah. was unbelievable. And I think, you know, and sort of especially this day and age, we have to be realistic that the Christian life isn't always easy. You know, it's not sort of prancing through a, a flower-filled meadow, you know, with birds tweeting. It's It can be hard and challenging, but you feel constantly supported and you feel constantly protected. And you know that all these challenges and difficulties, you can leave with somebody who deals with them better than we can. Because we're fragile, we're not. And, and that's, you know, that's not just somebody with an addiction. Everybody is. We're all, we all have our things that we struggle with and, you know, things in our life that, that look to pull us down and people that look to trip us up. Yeah. But... It's the difference between the two sides of that life, though. It's... Um... If you look at my, my previous life, I was living without consequence. I, I was doing whatever I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, and I believed that there was you know, major consequences to that. In reality, if I hadn't changed, then there would have been a very large consequence um, mm -hmm. at the end of my days. Whereas nowadays, there are consequences to my actions. Yeah. Not just for me, mm -hmm. but for people that look upon me. I don't just represent myself now. I represent, one, my family, two, the, the workplace, and three, the, the church that I go to, you know. But on the other side of that, at the end of my days, trusting in the Lord, the mm -hmm. consequences that, or the judgment that, that should be there, I pass by that. I have an advocate there waiting. It's, it's a strange way to live, as in previously, you know, living life, Whatever way, whatever way I wanted to, and thinking that I was free, whereas in reality, uh, I was the maker of my cage. I was the maker of my own prison cell. Nowadays, there are people that look upon me that would say that now I am not free. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, those, most of those people, in fact, all of those people, will be people that were living how I used to live. Whereas I would say that nowadays I'm as free as a bird. Yeah. It's freed from the captivity of sin, but then a servant of Christ, making the choice that I'm going to serve him. I, I think that's where a lot of people stumble, though. They hear serving Christ, and they think that it's a burden, whereas in reality it's not. It's a benefit to your life you know, on, on earth. It's not exactly a heavy yoke that's getting put over your shoulders. Yeah. The, the consequences and the, the way that that life is, is the thing that's going to grind you down. But Christ is there to to, yeah. to lift you up, basically. And and when it comes to it, to, to serve Christ is oh, it's, it's a blessing in itself. Yeah. It's the hope, though. I think it always does come back to to hope, and having hope, and and people have to have 
that. They have to have something to hold on to, something that that gives them hope that there's better in this than than this life. Yeah. Because it's it's hard. It's really hard living in this world and I think sometimes we can almost brush aside some of these problems and like we we're really fortunate Hillbank the church that we are going to you know they they have totally opened their arms and you know it, it can be difficult for a church that's never had to deal with members who have had previous addictions and yeah. and things you know they they've been so open and and willing to learn how they can support and how they can you know and and ha- they're happy to be challenged by something and that's really important actually being being part of a really supportive church you know being part of that and having that family that especially for us as a young married couple and you're not young you know i'm a lot younger than you so you know i'm not my fifth decade (laughs) you had to find yourself an old addict yeah (laughs) yeah my only hope was going to a soup kitchen (laughs) I highly recommend it. There's some really lovely people there. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who knew Mark before and knows Mark now cannot deny that there is something in the saving power of Jesus. You know, that you you cannot deny it. There has been such a massive change in every aspect of his life that cannot be put down to anything other than giving his life over to the Lord. I'm sure when when I was first saved, I'm sure that there was people that would have turned around, whether publicly or, or secretly, and thought, wonder, wonder how long this mm. is going to last. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that when you describe um, that kind of witness that comes from people who knew you before, knew you after, it makes us think mm. of the man who was demon-possessed with legion. Yeah. And he wanted to follow the Lord and the Lord said, stay where you are because yeah. I want you to tell people the things that God has done for you because his life was the witness, was the testimony. And it's that, yeah. it's that proof, you know, you, are, you like every Christian, is proof of the grace of God. Yeah. And, and having said that, uh, do you have a Bible verse that has been particularly helpful to you? I always used to turn to, to Psalm 23 because I used to think it had gravitas. I used to, probably because it's been used in movies. <laughs> but since I actually, since the point where I actually started reading my Bible, instead of just listening to things on films, um, John 3.16 was is, is always been a, a great thing. But not just John 3.16, moving on to John 3.17 as well. You know, to, to explain that, the Lord's coming, not 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 to condemn, you know, but mm-hmm. to save. Um, there's there's too too much condemnation uh, getting thrown about. We're too quick to to judge others and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the fact that it gets laid at the feet of Christians as well, where people on the outside or people with agendas believe that we are a certain kind of person, whereas in reality we're not. The the, the biggest difference is that we have an understanding of the the, the sin. That, that mars everybody's life, that mars the world. And to have just that, that, that small passage to say that, you know, for God so loved the world. Uh, I mean, to give your son is... I couldn't comprehend that myself. But to also point out that he's not coming to condemn us, which he has every right to do so. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's here to save us. Yeah. And all we need to do is to trust in him. Yeah. That's uh, it's mind-blowing. But... To add one quick thing, something else that's massively helped me as well is Christian music, and in particular, Steph McLeod. Okay. <laughs> and if you get the chance, you should interview him. Okay. I'll put him on the list. <laughs> yeah, it'd be something else to, to add to your, your ever-growing list. Yeah. I just want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your testimony, Mark. And I'm sorry that we rambled on for two hours. <laughs> that is okay. Do you know what? I found that very interesting. Just f- from my own perspective, I, I enjoy hearing testimonies. Obviously, I'll, I'll edit it down, I'll take bits out and I'll tweak it so it'll be probably no, about no, an, an hour fine. long. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We'll let you go. Lovely to see you again, Yeah, you too. Then. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye for now. This is a clip from next week's episode with Elaine Martin.
and then everything just went. One thing happened after another, very, very quickly thereafter. That was the start of the journey anyway, and it was a long week. You can rely on me to ask the morbid questions. <laughs> <laughs> Are you glad you're still alive? <laughs> so, death, let's talk. Thank you for listening to Testimony. If you have any suggestions as to who would make a good interview, then please get in touch at testimonypodcast at outlook.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.